I think it's the model of leadership that uh, improv has made possible. I think I grew up with, like many of us did, with a an impression that the parent should be the leader and the child should be the follower. And in improv, we know to collaborate, to build together, to um, have fluid leadership and co-leadership with your scene partner. I've increasingly embraced that now as uh, a parent of a teen. Hi, Kat. Hey, Livia. How are you doing? I'm great. How are you? I'm great, too. I'm so excited because we have Gabe Mercado with us today. And uh, I've been wanting to have him for a long time. We actually first spoke with him when we invited him to tell us a story as part of our Applied Improvisation Network talk that we did at the World Conference back in August. Yes, and uh, that conference was just a smorgasbord of improvisers and wonderful people, Gabe being one of them. Um, Gabe is the academic director of Third World Improv School and the founder and artistic director of SPIT, S-P-I-T, which is Manila's premier improv company. Uh, He's a corporate trainer and communication coach, and he's just an incredibly nice, sweet, lovable human. Yeah, I I loved him so much, and I, I really just get to see him once a year, mostly at these conferences, and I just had a sense that he would be a great storyteller and a wonderful person to share with, but I had no idea what he would come up with. Literally, we asked him blind to be a volunteer to tell a story when we did a live Dare to be Human 10-minute episode as a, as a talk at this conference and sort of like a TED Talk. And uh, he surprised us with this story, and it was so delicious and intense that we said, okay, we can, five minutes to debrief, this is not enough. We have to have you as a guest on the podcast and really unpack it. So, so, so that's what you're going to hear. You'll hear the audio be a little different at the beginning because we're going to take the first time he told the story on stage live so that you get to hear what we got to hear. Yes, and let us know what you think after you hear what we heard. Uh, Get in touch, hello at daretobehumanpodcast.com or give us a call at 518-212-7886. I think you'll see when you hear the story why we felt like it deserved more than five minutes of unpacking. Um, It's a little bit provocative. Stick with us. I would say stick with us. And the other thing I would say is, as you just said, Livia, um, we know Gabe to be one of the sweetest, most lovable people in the world. So I know that we heard the story through that filter. And I, I guess I would ask you, our hordes of listeners, to receive it from the very beginning with that in mind. Um, and yeah, we'd love to know what comes up for you as, as you hear it. Here we go. (laughs) 
I'd, I'd like to take you to take you back to the year um, 2006, and um, at that time, I was actually married for five years, and I had I had um, unexpectedly found out through friends that uh, my wife was actually having an affair, and I was totally crushed um, by that. Uh, being brought up, you know, very traditionally male. Um, it was a huge blow to my, to my ego. And I was sharing with my friends how crushed I was and how surprised I was at suddenly being a single parent. She had left us. Um, and I was sharing with friends and we were walking down the street and, um, we passed by this place where a band was playing and the band was familiar because it was the band of the man she had an affair with. And so I said, Look, his band is playing. And my friends were all with me. And I said, let's go in. <gasps> and this was just like a month after it happened. So I walk in. Um, and he had a very good band. But they were not popular. So there was no <laughs> audience. I walk in. And this is the stage. I walk where, uh, to where Marion is. And I just stood there in front stood there and I had a bag. As you can see, I like bags. So I had a big bag. I had a sling bag in front. And it was the last song. And I go up on stage right after the last song. I go, he's, he's packing up. I go up on stage and say, hello, you know me. <laughs> and he put his hands up immediately, looked at my bag and said, is that a gun? Do you have a gun? Are you going to kill me? And then I had to make the decision to lie that it was a gun or just to assure him that it wasn't a gun. So I made the decision not to answer the question. And I told him, step outside. I'm going to talk to you. And so I had a conversation. He was saying, you know, uh, I, she said you were in an open marriage and all of that. And, you know, I'm the victim here. He said, so what I did was I slapped him very playfully on the face and I said, shush, me and my son, we're the victims. And then I walked away and never told him I had no gun, <gasps> but just acted as if I had one. <laughs> and it was very empowering just to make somebody think that you had a gun and that you were willing to use it. That's my story. Wow. Wow. Oh my goodness, what an amazing, amazing story. Thank you for sharing that, first of all. Oh, you're welcome. You know, it, before we even get into the story itself, I, I feel like I just want to say we ask people to come to us with their stories, their dare to be human stories. And one of the things we've been spending a lot of time talking about, and one of the reasons we wanted to invite you is because it feels like such a rich story and it feels like such an act of generosity to choose to share that story with us when we're like, hey, would you come tell a story with us really with no other context other than that? So maybe we can start with why, how and why you chose that story to share. When, when you had invited me, I hadn't listened to the podcast yet. It was actually only after AIN that I started listening to some of the episodes. So all I had going was the title, Dare to mm. be Human. And I think I 
I stepped back and and thought of one time when I felt fully, fully human, <laughs> and that incident came to mind because I was, um, I was, I was in pain, and yet I was surrounded by friends. I was angry, and yet I found the humor and the luck in the situation. I initially thought, how unlucky could I get on a night out, being with friends and and seeking comfort, that I would bump into a, a person who had caused me a lot of pain. And then I quickly realized that, hey, I'm with friends. And this group of friends, um, there were a few, there was at least one other guy, um, but he's a little like me, um, you know, not not into fights or anything like that. But the three women who were with us that night, um, three of my friends, were, are some of the strongest, most combative women I know. <laughs> <laughs> and they, they're all like mother hens to me. And I knew that they had my back. And I think it was that, it was that feeling that um, first, they won't let me get into a lot of trouble. And they were also willing to fight for me as long as it was reasonable. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think it was, oh, oh, there, were, um, there was another guy, but... Two of them were were uh, top notch lawyers as well, so I I just felt that wow I'm I've got my friends here I've got I've got they've got my back and it was to protect me uh, they would protect me and they would um, also help me from getting into real real trouble so made me tell the story and in the end I felt I felt better I felt. <laughs> I felt a little bit that I had gotten a little bit of my dignity back just by confronting something that I thought would make me hang my head in fear. I'm struck by hearing that story and initially having the focus be on that moment of confrontation between you and this man and then hearing you reframe it, it, it almost feels like it's a different story now where it's like the focus is that I was surrounded by this group of people and I had this community and this beautiful support around me. And then right. that almost became like the aftermath of that, like the, the most important part of that, what felt most resonant to you was that I had these people who had my back, who were going to support me, were it reasonable and also help me if I got into any like legal trouble. So like... <laughs> <laughs> Or would prevent me from getting right, into like legal trouble. <laughs> Honestly, when I told that story um, during the AIN conference, I had pretty much forgotten that incident. But it just came up when you asked me about 10 minutes before um, our, our talk started. And now that I recall it, what I'm thinking is, I think I had the courage because I had such great friends mm. behind me. And that's another angle of the story. I think, I think I have, I have wonderful friends who have seen me through difficult times. That's lovely. 
I'm basking in the deliciousness yes. of how much we get to talk to you right now, especially since we didn't last time. There's so many places to go. Um, just to dive into the story a little bit, you know, one of the things we talk about here are the principles of improv and you are an applied improviser. That's how we know yes. you and how we first heard this story. Um, one of the things that strikes me in this story is the this moment when you're confronting this man, we'll call him a man because we're terribly, <laughs> you know, for want of a more derogatory term, um, this, <laughs> and, um, and he, he makes an offer like in this little scene where you're confronting each other of putting his hands up and saying, is that a gun? Right. And which is such a sort of, scenic offer right like in the context of a little improvisational scene it feels so right. theatrical right and you tell us about you have this decision to make like what do I do right you don't have an actual gun so it's really improvisational right do you get to decide right. Right. as an improviser what am I going to do in this moment and do I yes mm -hmm. and the offer or not I think it's so delicious it, I, I basically <laughs> dodged the question. I just, I just took it as an indicator of status. Right. Um, for me, him asking the question immediately told me that, oh, I have the higher status. I have power over the situation. And I can take it to where I wanted to go. So I didn't have to answer the question whether I had it or not. But I just... Using your words, I basked in the deliciousness of that situation <laughs> of not answering yes or no. <laughs> it's in some ways it was like you had it just by you had the power of it just because yes. he assumed, right? Like he endowed you right. with a weapon that didn't exist. Yeah. Yeah. And it took me so much about his mm. uh, maybe I'm over reading about shame about fear mm. about him knowing that that I know that yeah. we know absolutely and I find it funny that the real story was that it was absolutely a chance encounter and um, we just happened to be in the same neighborhood but I guess um, the way he looked at it I had come in with a posse <laughs> of um, scary-looking people, and uh, I had him <laughs> where where we wanted. Your so cadre, I, 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 <laughs> your cadre I found that tough, delicious. I, I, your cadre of tough women and lawyers. <laughs> right, right. Um, so uh, even at that time. Um, when we got into the car and left, we were high-fiving each other in the car just because it seemed like that he had some comeuppance that I had enough of a revenge to say, okay, that'll do. You can move on with your life now. That moment of, of sort of choosing not to answer and then the other moment in the story when you say you gently patted his cheek when he was calling himself yeah. a victim and said no you know we're the victim is such a you know you mentioned the word status and we 
to me, it feels like such a powerful performance choice of, as you say, claiming your dignity back, but also really taking the high ground in some way, like claiming your own. There's something about taking care of yourself and claiming your righteousness and at the same time (laughs) doing it in a really like when we, when they go low, we go high way. Right. Right. Um, There's actually uh, another story involving the same guy and it happened. um, I think a month before Mm. Um, you see this guy, I, I knew him. My best friend had introduced us. And this guy was actually married as well. Um, And I also knew the wife. This happened um, the day after I had found out about the affair. I decided that I wanted to talk to him. One thing that I discovered going through all of this is that I have a high sense for the dramatic when I'm stressed and angry. So I, I calm down and it's like I look for cinematic moments. So um, what happened was the day after I found out, I decided to call him. And I decided to time it for like 11 in the morning because I knew enough about him to know that um, what time he goes to work. And uh, where he worked, he worked there with his wife. So I wanted to catch him either on the car ride going to their office or just as they got to the office. And so I called him. And then I put on a very cheerful voice. And let's pretend his name is David. I said, David. And he said, oh, who's this? And I said, it's Gabe Mercado. (laughs) And he paused. And he said, oh, in Filipino, I said, oh, pare, what can I do for you? And I said, I know what you're doing with my wife. <gasps> and he said, what? What are you saying? And I said, get off it. I know what you're doing with my wife. In that voice. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> um, and then I said, and here's the thing. I know you. I know your wife. And I know you're a great dad. Oh. But the thing is, what you just did, you tore my family apart. And this will be on your head. And then he just started stammering about, you know, oh, you know, um, she said you were in an open relationship and all that. <laughs> um, and I said, you know what? I will not do what you did to me because nobody deserves that. Nobody deserves what you did to me. And so I won't tell your wife. I won't tell your kids. Your secret is safe with me. And then I paused and said, but you're going to have to deal with my best friend and he's on his way there to you right now. <gasps> and my best friend is, um, his name is Jay. He's pretty big and he does uh, Filipino martial arts. Oh no. <laughs> oh, no. 
<laughs> but he's the least violent person I know. <laughs> sure, sure. Um, and yeah, 20 minutes later, Jay showed up in his office. <laughs> wow. And no, there was no violence. But yeah. yeah, that happened maybe a month before actually seeing seeing him in the bar where he was playing. Um, when I saw him in the bar, that was the first time I had seen him in person since it happened. So I think, yeah, when I'm under stress, when I'm angry in situations like that, I, wow, I have a flair for the dramatic, I guess. <laughs> well, you're, uh, you're an actor and a performer. Right, right. And there's something about being under stress that brings out the best performer in me. <laughs> that you get to channel your talent into your life. Right. I didn't even know I could do that voice um, that, that, that I did with him. So I was like, wow. Um, so there was a bit of um, out-of-body experience also of me saying, wow, uh, you needed this to become a better actor. Hmm. Yeah. I'm thinking about that and like being able to meet you and what, what I know about you and what we've talked about, that this is, mm -hmm. this is not your MO. This is not normal for you. This is not like anger and violence and, and rage and that kind of set of human emotions is sort of set aside for like, we think of those, those juicy, like acting moments of when people describe like a meaty role. It's usually, there's like a scene where they're, sobbing and crying and really upset or they finally unleash all of their rage and like get to get to have that cathartic moment so yeah I'm just struck by that being like a moment in the real world where you got to have this like Oscar award-winning moment <laughs> in the real world I think so I, I wish I could have gotten an award for it <laughs> <laughs> your award um, yeah. is reasonable revenge <laughs> Yeah, reasonable and uh, <laughs> non-criminal. Yeah, non-criminal. You didn't even need your lawyers. <laughs> no, but they were there. Yeah, so um, I, I was surprised that anger uh, and rage could be so calm and focused. Mm -hmm. That really surprised me. Um, I, I had never been in a situation like this before. Probably the lowest I had ever been. And yet there was, it was scary that there was a certain calmness and focus to it. At the beginning, you talked about how in, in your culture and I think everywhere that there is this certain role of how to be masculine and how to be macho and, and how uh, knowing that like the expectations of what that should look like and then what ended up happening. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. In, Philippine culture, um, I think the best way, I hope I'm not offending anyone when I say this, the best way to understand Filipino culture is that we're very close to um, Mexicans. Um, in fact, um, we were although we were colonized by Spain for 400 years, the reality is all our co colonizers came from the settlers in Mexico. So a lot of the culture is the same. And in a lot of Hispanic cultures, the man is often seen as macho and the man can have lovers and paramours and all of that. And one of the most humiliating 
things for uh for a man in a macho culture is to be is to be um cheated on and so i i think i was although i've never considered myself to be a macho man or somebody who who subscribed to that um i was struggling with the perceived shame that came out of this situation of how people would see me after that how family would treat me how other men would treat me after that because apparently um that affair had been public knowledge except for me i mean it sounds like you certainly had a strong core group of friends who were really supportive yes were, were you surprised by people's reaction or i was extremely lucky that the night i found out we were doing an improv show mm. so um i had my my group uh around me my best friend jay who i've already mentioned in the other yes. story he <laughs> did not go home for about a week he stayed with me for a week at home mm. just making sure that we were okay you know um having run of the household he's he also happens to be a chef so oh nice <laughs> um he he cooked for me and people started volunteering information too as we were going on so there was tremendous tremendous support from from all over after that well that's lovely that's a nice surprise it sounds like yeah um yes and <laughs> uh yes and no um i i think i might have um you know getting married and spending um a few years just concentrating on the marriage made me forget that i had i had made many many good friends um over the years and it was lovely how they all came together like that group of strong women they were a very good uh, group of friends whom i had met in an internet chat room in the late 90s and they we, and we just started hanging out together and they were there and they were there when i needed the most i had high school friends who had heard about it and i came from a small high school and um it was an all boys catholic school we we aren't the most expressive bunch but i would have high school classmates um some of whom were bullies in high school and grade school call me up and say how are you today um, is everything okay today and there was this there were two um I'll, i'll mention them um bowie um is a very very big guy and when our basketball team in high school would would uh, play against other teams maybe 8 out of 10 arguments and fights that would break out between our school team and the opponent would be caused by Bowie and he would <laughs> he would message me throughout that time and say um gay buddy i love you and it was the most it seems so awkward coming from the big bad guy of the team but i had appreciated i appreciated it so much another classmate charlie would do that too message me call me how are you doing today you know we're here for you we know we love you 
and remembering that makes me really appreciate that if there's any single gift that i have in life it's it's i have good friends in my corner i don't think i nurtured them necessarily well or i didn't do anything extraordinary um as a friend throughout my life but i consider it luck that i have such wonderful people around me well i have the impulse to say you're you're pretty exceptional i'm not surprised that you attract loving people who love you just knowing you and being in your orbit i have to say and the other thought that i have is you make me think about the difference between sort of the stories we have around sort of our culture our cultural norms that we're taught mm-hmm. right, or that we're told to believe and then the actual reality of the relationships we have right or the way individual people interact with us and right. I, I think that's really interesting i i imagine it's true for a lot of us right that there are the expectations that we have or the things we're taught to believe we're supposed to be or that we measure ourselves against versus what is true for us in our actual lives or even right. the people that we interact with who know us right I, I and and i really think that it was because of this situation that it allowed my friends to express themselves in an especially vulnerable way too and i appreciate having felt that support and vulnerability from them as well mostly i've known you through our professional network and since right. this time and one of the things that i know most about you is what an amazing father you are and what a big part of your life that is and i imagine in some ways this is the origin story of you as a single father right and it also has a little bit of a background so i'm a single dad of my son vito he's 14 years old right now and we had actually uh, adopted vito when he was 2 months old and what's interesting is because um the reason why um we were able to adopt him is because my family has been very active in adoption circles i have a sister who's adopted i have a nephew who's adopted so it became quite natural for us as an option to adopt him and um i've been raising him um as a solo parent ever since that time he was he was uh 2 years old exactly 2 years old when we found out we were surprised by the situation we were in mm. and being uh, a solo parent has i think also allowed me to be to fully embrace all sides of me since i i had to provide for the emotional needs the physical <laughs> physical needs the financial needs of of my son so i feel fully realized and fully androgynous as a parent um, <laughs> <laughs> and it it's something that i i enjoy doing because there's no co-parent to hide behind now um yeah and i have to be everything and everyone to my son but at the same time not be everything and not be 
everyone to him, especially now that he's a teen. What part do you think your skills that you built as an improviser help you being an androgynous single parent? Wow. I think it's the model of leadership that uh, improv has made possible. I think I grew up with, like many of us did, with a an impression that the parent should be the leader and the child should be the follower. And in improv, we know to collaborate, to build together, to um, have fluid leadership and co-leadership with your scene partner. I've increasingly embraced that now as uh, a parent of a teen, that being dictatorial and being all leadery and making him follow <laughs> doesn't necessarily work anymore or isn't the most present and isn't the most nurturing setup. That's a big thing. And also uh, embracing that there are probably no set in stone, one size fits all ways to bring up a child. Every child is unique, has different needs at different times. And discovering it together with my son, um, I wouldn't have been able to deal with that uncertainty if I didn't uh, have improv in my life. Yeah. Someone said to me once when they're little, you're like the boss. And then at some point you become a consultant. (laughs) (laughs) If you're lucky. If you're lucky, right. If they'll have, well, they can fire you at any time, I suppose. Right. (laughs) Right. My daughter's 16. And so we're in similar places, I think. Yeah, we're in very similar places. Yeah. Is there something that's delighting you that you'd love to talk about? Oh, um, a little over a year ago, my son and I decided to imagine a life outside of Metro Manila. Um, Metro Manila is the capital of the Philippines, and we have like 12 million people living um, in a city that's the most congested city in the world in terms of population per, in terms of population density. It's routine that people who work in an office can get stuck in up to five hours of traffic every day (laughs) coming and going. You have public transit that hardly works. Aside from everything else you hear about our wonderful president and our wonderful government. Yikes. But everything's here in Metro Manila. And my son and I, uh, over a year ago, decided to imagine a life outside of Metro Manila, but still living in the Philippines. So we had the chance and we took it to start a new life in a northern city called Baguio. Now, Baguio, (laughs) Baguio, I I think a a bad comparison would be, it would be like the Hamptons is to me, except that this is the Hamptons in the 70s and 80s. Baguio is a mountain town, about, you know, five, six hour drive from, from Manila. And when I was growing up, everyone had a country home 
or a country apartment, at least in, in, in my school there in Baguio, because the temperature is much, uh, is much cooler there. It was a city where almost all the major infrastructure was put up by the, uh, by the Americans in the turn of the century. Um, and it's an idyllic town. It's a university town. And I remember um, telling my mom when I was about 10 or 11 years old in one of our trips there that, Mom, I, I, I want to live here. And at 45, just being sick of Manila, I said, I'm going to make it happen. I'm going to live here. And as with some of the things that I do, the living part, fortunately, came together. We found a place that we could afford, and we got it. And then I started asking the question, okay, how am I going to make a living yeah. uh, up here? <laughs> because it's a much smaller, much smaller city. And it's, it came together just this year. I was invited to a chat group by one of my friends. And one of my friends um, was working for a venture capitalist firm. And she had told me that this particular venture capitalist firm was different from other venture capitalist firms because it was made up of a global network of people with varied backgrounds. So there were there are scientists, there are teachers, there are engineers, um, there's a bartender. And, <laughs> you got to have a and, bartender, man. <laughs> right. And this network of... Um, um, this network... Um, was interested in investing in startups and businesses that would change the world and tackle social problems. And I was intrigued uh, by it um, and secretly hoping that, hey, um, maybe I could get into that. And she had um, invited me to a chat group talking about um, the possibility of putting up a space where kids could freely create and freely experiment on their ideas and have access to the latest technology to do it, meaning 3D printers, laser cutters, the latest in artificial intelligence and, and robotics and all of that. Wow. And she said that, she was the, that they were thinking of putting um, that up in Manila. And in that chat group, there were other people from Manila. And immediately, they started saying, oh, but what about the traffic coming home from school? And then they're going to go to a place like that. And Manila also has a very toxic um, educational culture. So they were saying, oh, but it will interfere with uh, tutoring mm. yeah. <laughs> and all of that. And I said, and I, and I had been done with Manila uh, already and I said you know why don't you put it up in Baguio and I said I said that because right in front of my apartment in in Baguio um, a very well respected uh, independent bookstore had set up in a house and there were many rooms available in that house and they had declared that they wanted to make it a creative hub wow. and I boldly said you know do it in Baguio. Baguio is a university town. They're a UNESCO creative city. And I have the perfect space for it. A month later, <laughs> the, um, the, the Japanese venture capitalist came over, looked at the house and said, okay, let's do it. 
So I love it. Um, <laughs> so by March or April next year, um, uh, we're opening. It's called Vivita uh, PH, um, and it is a creative space where kids can play, have wonderful ideas, have access to all the latest technology, and it's an after-school activity. And the intention is to make the next kid entrepreneur, techie, um, inventor, um, mad genius. And wow. it's uh, it's going to be free for kids. That's amazing. Um, That's incredible. And the way I describe it is I feel like I'm living a dream that I never knew I had. Oh. <laughs> So um, we're, we're setting that up and, um, and the support uh, from the community has been good. And, and Baguio is a town that, uh, well, it's a city that in our over 500 years, 400 years of colonization by both the Spaniards for 400 years and the Americans for 50 years, it had never really been conquered by the Spanish. So a lot of the mountain tribes still have their culture. Some of them still um, have much of their um, culture intact. And the thought of integrating um, AI, robotics, um, tech with indigenous culture, with uh, the traditional tapestries, basket work, um, silver work and woodwork is very intriguing and um, very exciting. So that's what I'm passionate about uh, right now and spending most of my time. And here's the <laughs> here's uh, uh, another tidbit. Actually, in the last few hours of our AIN conference in Stony Brook, I was sitting alone because I was just out. I was just weary of talking to so many people mm-hmm. and I was um, in, in, the, in a small corner and um, someone from the conference actually walked up and was asking me a question about the session that, uh, that I was leading, the open space session. And we quickly got into, con- into a conversation and it turns out that Sharon Klotz, who was part of our conference, is the... Um, Head for Invention Education at the Lemelson Institute for Inventions and Innovation at the Smithsonian Institute. She was part of our conference. Yeah. And she's in the she's in the field of Amazing. inspiring kids to invent things. So I got an invitation. Um, I was really on the way to DC well, right after. And we met up at her at her Spark Lab at the Smithsonian, and I felt again it was another magical moment where really somehow, <laughs> somehow, um, even dreams like this, you, you find the right people along the way. That's beautiful, and I think that counts as a dare to be human story too. To just like say, oh, let's magically dare to go live in a city where we wanted to live since we were a kid and we'll make it work and right. then dare to put something out on a post about coming to our city. And that's beautiful. Sharon Klotz, yeah. by the way, and I worked together back in 2001, just about right. the time that I was 
drafting the very first edition of my book. We worked together and hadn't seen each other, I think, since that time until this conference. Wow. Isn't that funny? How funny. Yeah. It's just another serendipitous connection. <laughs> <laughs> and and literally it happened in the last last two hours, last two or three hours of the convention. Because you chose to to d- take care of yourself and find a quiet spot. And it wouldn't have happened right. if you hadn't. And, and, yes, and, and I was your trying, impulse. <laughs> and I was busily sending out signals of leave me alone, leave me alone. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. I love it. And yet, and yet she saw through that and and uh, she saw, I guess, the need to make a connection. I love it. Well, I'm, I'm looking forward to finding an excuse to come visit your center in the Philippines. Oh, someday. let's make that Sounds happen. <laughs> I'm inspired and I'm struck by the the kind of the theme of doing doing the next little thing and, you know, not not necessarily getting hung up on what hasn't happened yet or what are the possibilities could be that might stop something from happening because you can't worry about that yet because it hasn't happened yet. And just going with that impulse and stepping into the next thing and, uh, and yeah, going, going one step at a time, but making each of those steps count for something. Even after hearing our discussion again and hearing his story again, I still feel like we need like four more hours to get started. Right. So much in that story about culture and emotion and and guns. <laughs> yup. <laughs> so when we heard the story for the first time, one of the ways I responded in our first five-minute debrief mm-hmm. was to say something like, wow, you know, I'm going to ha- I'm gonna secretly carry my gun, my invisible gun by my side to when I need courage and self-esteem. And I felt the, and the whole audience sort of went, oh, and I thought, oh, no, 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 I don't mean not like that. <laughs> and, and, and I had this flash after I'd said it of like, I can't, make a quip about pretending to have a gun in this day and age with, you know, the terrible problem we have in the States with gun violence. And I've been this huge, you know, gun control, you know, anti-gun advocate. It's been, you know, near and dear to my heart with my daughter who's having lockdown drills in her school. And, um, but in that moment, that wasn't in my head. In that moment, I I understood sort of the safety someone might feel or the empowerment that someone might feel feeling like they had that. And even though for me it would always be an imaginary gun and for Gabe it was an mm-hmm. imaginary gun, I think there's a way I could empathize or have insight into someone saying, I want to have a gun for safety. And the second thought I had as I unpacked that later was 
wow, I guess that's the power of story. I guess that's what this whole experiment is about, is expanding our capacity for empathy and insight. Yeah, and, and giving the chance for for things to be looked at in a different way, no matter what is happening in the world and what is what is going on in that moment, what's going on in that story right now for that person and them telling it and people receiving it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Without opinion or judgment. Mm -hmm. It doesn't change my opinion mm -hmm. about gun control at all, but there's some nuance there. Right. Yeah. Everyone should get an imaginary gun. Well, maybe if we had more imaginary <laughs> guns, yeah. right, we would need fewer real ones, right? If we had mm. felt more empowered and safe. Yes. Oh, yeah, I like that. Yeah, right? That's really good. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. So I, I want, I'm really curious what our audience yeah. feels. You yeah. know, we had some conversation here mm -hmm. in the Dare to be Human Mopco studios about what people would feel and think hearing the story. And, you know, we know Gabe and we know mm -hmm. what a gentle pacifist soul he is, but how would that play and what would people think? And would it be, pardon the pun, triggering mm -hmm. to hear right. stories, <laughs> to hear these stories? So we really are very, very curious what your reaction was and what it brought up for you and what your reaction was and what your associations were with the story. So let us know. A, how do they do that, Livia? Well, uh, they can email us at hello at daretobehumanpodcast.com or give us a call at 518-212-7886 or get in touch any manner of social media. Um, like us, follow us, subscribe, and uh, we want to hear from you. We really, really want to hear from you. Please call us. <laughs> We're sitting by the phone. 